and we pray it. Your kingdom come, your will be done literally on earth as it is in heaven. And so the scripture pictures Messiah coming back, standing on the top of the Mount of Olives, and he will rule sovereignly across the world. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the daily radio program of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are working in a study of the book of Jonah. Jonah was not a myth. He was an actual historical figure, and Jesus saw him as exactly that. Dr. Brogy begins in Jonah chapter 2, verse 10 today, but first we'll move to the New Testament as he examines the prophetic significance of Jonah. Jonah is a prophet of God who lived 750 years before Christ. And even if you've never read much of the Bible or even this prophet, you probably know something about him. Most people know, oh yeah, Jonah, he was swallowed by a whale. It's a whale of a story, they think. But it's historical fact. It actually happened. You know, it's not news when we read a dog bites man, but news is when man bites a dog. <laughs> it's not news when a man catches a fish, but it's news when a fish catches a man. And so this morning, we want to start by looking at the verse we left off on, just one verse, Jonah chapter 2 in verse 10, and then we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and we're going to see its prophetic significance. This is a very important section of Scripture to the Lord Jesus the people that he encounters. Now, if you're here for the first time, this is the fifth of what I project to be 10 messages on the book of Jonah. So just briefly, let me review where we are. We met Jonah in chapter one. He's running from God, and so we've entitled that chapter the prodigal prophet. God commissioned him to preach. The message that he preached is given in Jonah chapter three and verse four. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Eight words in our English Bible, five words in the Hebrew text. The shortest message given to a rebellious people. And yet God cared about the people of Nineveh. While they weren't interested in God, God was interested in Nineveh. This was not some hard, fast prophecy that he's going to destroy the Ninevites. Otherwise, he never would have sent Jonah to preach. This was God in his grace and mercy and compassion reaching out to a nation of people. He cared, and we should care too. If your heart is cold where you've stopped caring for lost people, get it right before you leave today. If you can't remember the last time you even attempted to share the gospel, share a word of testimony, maybe invited someone to church, either A, you've never been born again, or B, your heart is just cold and stale and you don't want to stay there. So here's this prophet. God says, go east to Nineveh. He goes west to Tarshish. Becomes a tourist, as it were, gets on a Mediterranean cruise, but because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he hurls a storm from heaven on the ocean. Now, the sailors, they don't know where this storm has come from, but they know it's divine bad. And so they try to do things. They each pray and call on their gods, and that doesn't work. And so they try to get rid of things. They cast the cargo overboard. That doesn't work. 
By the way, that's what a lot of unsaved people do today. They try to do certain things or they try to stop doing other things. But that can't fix the problem. And so ultimately they throw this substitute Jonah overboard and the storm immediately ceases. Now before long, Jonah is uh, in the mouth of a great fish. His whale house becomes a jailhouse. You say, was he swallowed by a literal whale? Well, uh, the text says here, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. The Lord appointed a great fish, a dagadal in Hebrew. Might have been a whale. Interestingly, the King James Version in the New Testament speaks on this passage, and they render it three days and three nights in the whale's belly. The New King James renders it three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. We don't know that it was a whale. May very well have been a whale. It was just a large sea creature. You say, is that possible? God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. And whether you believe it or not, it's still settled truth. Look, I would have no more confidence in the Bible if they found some petrified skeleton with Jonah's initials carved into the ribs than I do with the written scripture right here. God can do whatever he wants to do. And if he wanted to appoint a great fish and have a bedroom full of furniture and a refrigerator in it, he could have. He can do whatever he wants to do. But then we read in chapter two and verse 10. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited up Jonah onto the dry land. Now hold that thought and turn to the Gospel of Matthew because we have some divine commentary on all that happened here in Jonah. Matthew chapter 12. Again, if you're new, it's the very first book in the New Testament. Go to Matthew chapter 12. I am so pleased to see so many of you with Bibles this morning. Some of you are here for the first time and you don't bring a Bible because you don't think you need a Bible. And sadly, you don't in most churches today. But I'm not here to share my opinion. We are here to open the word of God. And in Matthew 12, Jesus references Jonah as a real historical person. And this is a real event with a real fish. And he has said in uh, verse 39 that an evil and an adulterous generation craves for a sign. Yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Then he said, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what is the sign of Jonah? And why did the Lord say that this would be the only sign given to unbelieving Israel? What precisely precipitated that statement by Jesus? And then we're going to see in the context of that statement that some of the religious leaders are about to commit a sin called blasphemy against the spirit that is so serious that Jesus said it cannot be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. There is a sin that God cannot forgive. So we need to understand not only what is the sign of Jonah, we need to clearly understand what is blasphemy against the spirit. Sometimes, Christians have asked me, I think maybe I've committed blasphemy against the Spirit. And over the decades, I've encountered unbelievers who said, I'm not sure I can become a Christian. I think I have committed the unforgivable sin. 
So we're going to study it in depth. Now, I'm not going to read every verse in Matthew 12, but let's hit some of the highlights. Matthew 12, starting in verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now drop down to verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and an adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, if you're using your note-taking outline, there's one in the bulletin. If you are online, you can print it out. We want to study this portion of Scripture under three headings. So let's first consider the miracle that was performed. Let's first think about the miracle that was performed. Look again in verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. Now notice the very first word in verse 22. It's the word then. You might want to circle that. By the way, if you have a paper Bible will help you to learn the Bible. And if you are actually engaged in trying to bring people to Christ and disciple them, this is a question they are going to ask you. It's not if, it's when. You need to be able to respond. And so some of the notes that I ask you to write on the margin will be helpful to you later on. You'll say, oh yeah, Pastor Carl gave me this verse. Maybe we should look at it. And it will spark some thought, I hope. Then, that's the first word. It takes us back to verse 14, and that the ones who brought this demon-possessed man to Jesus are called the Pharisees, and in that verse it says they conspired as to how they might destroy him. So here's a man who was blind, he could not see, and he was mute, he could not speak, and so communication is very, very difficult. The Pharisees brought this man in this sad state, He's blind, he's mute, add to that he's demon-possessed. They thought, this is it, we've struck gold. Here's the perfect illustration to show that Jesus is not who he claimed to be. But the Bible says in verse 22, he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. He put them right back on their heels. Now notice the response in verse 23, 
all the crowds, some of the older translations say all the multitudes. It's the Greek word oklos. It's used of not a handful of people, but a great number of people. Say, how great? Well, for instance, in the Garden of Gethsemane and Oklos, a crowd, a great multitude came and arrested Jesus, and there was over a thousand people who came to arrest him there in Gethsemane. So when you say the word crowd or multitude, depending on your English Bible, it's talking about a whole lot of people, a lot of folks present on this day, and they were amazed. It's the strongest Greek word used to describe amazement. We might say they were blown away, they were overwhelmed, they were beside themselves. And so they were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? So they're astonished. And it prompts a question concerning the possibility, the way it's structured in Greek, it's not a rhetorical question, meaning yes he is. It's structured, there's a possibility. But probably not, he can't possibly be the son of David, could he? That's their thinking. Now, why would they think that way? Because one of the great pictures of the Messiah in the Bible is that when he comes, he comes not just to do miracles, but he comes to rule and reign. And of course, there's two pictures of the Messiah found in Scripture. Not only is he the sovereign king, he is the suffering servant. But before he rules and reigns over the whole earth, he must first come and suffer and die there on Calvary. And so they raise the faint possibility, yes, this is a miracle. But we don't see him ruling and reigning like we're promised concerning the Messiah. And what they didn't understand is that first he comes to die as a suffering servant. Then he comes a second time as the sovereign king. Well, the people nonetheless are amazed, and this is threatening to the religious leaders. So they dismissed the possibility entirely. Look at 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So they're open to the possibility that he could be the Messiah. And the Pharisees just squish it. They say, no, what he is doing is done by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Beelzebub was the name of a Philistine god, and it meant Lord of the Flies. They can't deny this triple miracle. It's clear. A triple miracle has taken place. The demons are gone. The man can see, and now he can speak. So what do they do? They say, we can't deny the miracle. But we can tell you how the miracle came down. It didn't come down by this one called Jesus. By his power, it came by the power of the devil himself. Now, Beelzebul, this Phoenician god, it's really the god of filth. How did they come up with this god? Well, number one, they suppressed the truth of God. When men reject the one true God, revelation that God has given to all men through creation and conscience, when they suppress God's eternal attributes, his divine nature and power, then they come up and believe and worship the creation. That's where America is. We're worshiping the creation. We're worshiping the green God, not the one true God of the Holy Scripture. It's literally become a God with sacraments and everything else, it seems, in which they follow and espouse. Well, they came up with this God. There's a piece of dung on the ground. And all of a sudden, life comes from it. 
Maggots come and they're crawling everywhere. There it is. This is the God of filth. We need to worship him. And so that's what they say Jesus has done. He's done it. It became synonymous with the Pharisees because they obviously didn't believe in worshiping the creation. But they said this is, this is the satanic God that the Philistines worship. And Jesus is doing what he is doing by Satan himself. Now, up until this time, Jesus has been speaking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God being near. But after this event, it stops. One of my professors in seminary, Dr. Dwight Pentecost, I took more courses under him than any professor. I loved Dr. Pentecost. We became great friends, and I was able to pick up the phone and call him long after I graduated from this school. And he said, Carl, the key... The key to understanding Matthew 13 is Matthew chapter 12. Now, if you know Matthew 13, it's the kingdom parables. Why has Christ postponed the kingdom? Because of Matthew chapter 12. Because of their rebellion, because they are saying, this one, Yeshua, Jesus, is doing what he is doing by the power of the devil himself. That's the first point, the miracles that were performed. Secondly, there in your outline, let's think further about the parables that were expressed. The parables that were expressed. And I say parables because this is the terminology that the Gospel of Mark uses in the parallel account. Next to verse 24, write out Mark 3.23. Mark 3.23. Let me read it to you. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? So Jesus went on to explain that the kingdom of God has arrived, not by giving them a lecture on theology, but by painting pictures, getting their attention through parables. So let's talk about a parable for a moment. It just literally comes from the Greek into English, parabole. Para means alongside, bole means to cast. And so it's a, it's a figure of speech where you cast alongside an illustration with a teaching. It, it's not just like an illustration a pastor might give. It's not a figure of speech. It, it, it's, it, it's a teaching that has an illustration cast alongside of it so that you might make a decision. He's calling people to respond when he gives these parables. In fact, in Matthew chapter 21, where you read of some of the parables of Christ, they are so penetrating, they are so personal, that the chief priests and the Pharisees from that day on want to seize him, and they want to murder him. So now we read in verse 25 of Matthew 12, and knowing their thoughts, circle that word thoughts, it's critical to understanding the passage, and knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, knowing what these Pharisees were thinking, Jesus now defends his authority, that he is the Messiah, and he uses three arguments that you do not want to miss. Argument number one, it's found here where he says, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. So first he said, if he were casting out demons by Satan's power, then Satan clearly would be working against himself. By the way, he affirms that Satan has a kingdom. He affirms that Satan has a house, and the house that's described, and it's further elucidated for us later in the chapter in verses 42 and 43, 
is a man's body. This was Satan's house. And not only does he have a house, he has houses, as the verses that follow will indicate. His point is, is that if Satan casts out demonic powers out of his house, then he's opposing himself. Why? Because any kingdom, any city, any household divided against itself will not stand. And so it's a basic reason of truth. Therefore, he asked this question in verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? It cannot. Put out on the margin another verse that's important. Mark 3.26 in the parallel text. Write it down. Mark 3.26. Let me read it to you. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. Why would Satan let Jesus cast out a demon and free a man who's already under his power and control? To do so would divide his kingdom, and he may be wicked, but he is certainly not stupid. Satan is not fighting against himself. Their argument is both illogical, it's ridiculous, it's impractical, because Satan would never fight against himself. But Satan has a kingdom. He's called the God, small g, of this age. Adam lost the right to rule, and Satan gained it. Christ will someday fully secure it when he rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years. So that's his first argument. It's illogical for Satan to fight against himself. Notice his second argument in verse 27. If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they shall be your judges. If your sons, meaning the disciples of the Pharisees, cast out demons by the power of God, which they were quick and ready to affirm, if the power to cast out demons, as the Pharisees argued in that day, came from the hand of God itself, then why would you come to a different conclusion concerning me? If you are going to say that I am casting out demons by the evil one, then you have to conclude that your sons, your disciples, are casting out demons by the evil ones, and you would never come to that conclusion. And so under pressure coming up with this explanation, they've really painted themselves into a corner. If it was Satan's power, then both they and their sons are operating under that same power. So that's his second argument. If you believe exorcists who represent you because the Pharisees were over that group of people, if they're casting it out by the power of Satan, then you, uh, by, if I'm casting out by the power of Satan, then you have to conclude your disciples are doing the same. Now, the third argument, don't miss it, verse 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of, has come, why? Because the king is present. How do we know the king is present? because he's doing the things that Messiah King was promised to do. Now certainly, Jesus is not the only one who did miracles up till this time in human history. But miracles were never done consistently through the history of Israel, just on the great turning points. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob never did a miracle. First one to do a miracle was Moses, and then for a short time, Joshua. 
until they went into the promised land. Hundreds of years went by. None of the prophets, major, minor, ever did a miracle. Elijah and Elisha did because, again, it was one of the great turning points of Israel's history. Now, miracles were done, but not through men. Daniel witnessed miracles. Isaiah witnessed miracles. But through men, no, just a limited select few. And hundreds of years go by, and we don't see the next cluster of miracles until Christ and the apostles come on the scene. And there were some miracles that were unique to Messiah. No one opened blind eyes before. That's a messianic miracle according to Isaiah 35. Now, while we're here for a moment, let's think about the kingdom of God for just a moment because there are three aspects to God's kingdom that the scriptures delineate for us. Certainly, there's the aspect that God is sovereign, that he is ruling and reigning over the whole world. For instance, uh, in Psalm 103, 19, we read, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. You need to write down these verses. I'll tell you why, because there's a whole group of Christians. They're called amillennialists and they say this is all there is concerning the kingdom. And so the way they are approaching these days that we are living in is distorted and twisted. They think somehow things are going to turn around and everything's going to change when they need to be warning God's people We are in that time frame called the latter days when Israel would be back in the land. This is the final time frame of human history. But they are right in saying certainly God is ruling in heaven above. Listen to what David said in Psalm 145, 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. But what they don't see and what they deny is a literal kingdom because they think the church has replaced Israel. We haven't replaced Israel. God has made a covenant with the Jews that as long as the sun and the stars and the moon are in the skies, Jeremiah 31 says, I will not forsake Israel. And so God made a promise of a kingdom to the Jews And we pray it, your kingdom come, your will be done literally on earth as it is in heaven. And so the scripture pictures Messiah coming back, standing on the top of the Mount of Olives, and he will rule sovereignly across the world. And the New Testament gives us the length of that kingdom being a thousand years. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You're praying for the literal kingdom. On the other hand, beyond the fact that God is ruling today in heaven above, someday God will literally rule on earth below. God is ruling within hearts today through a second birth. And so Jesus can say, the kingdom of God is within you in Luke 17, 21. Meaning when you are saved, when you are born again, you have been visited by the Spirit of God and His kingdom is operative in your heart. There's a spiritual dimension to the kingdom. There is both a spiritual and a physical dimension to the kingdom of God. While He rules in the hearts of believers, one day He will come and literally rule the world. If you'd like a copy of today's message in its entirety, you can go online to searchthescriptures.org Or you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478 and requesting program JNH5. 
Of course, we recommend you use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app, which is available for smartphones and tablets. Tomorrow, Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And you can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found in the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. And also check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. Monday, we'll return to our study and continue to search the scriptures.